Hello, welcome to episode number 118 of Turkey Book Talk. I'm William Armstrong here in Istanbul. In this episode, we hear from Serhun Al, assistant professor at Izmir Economics University, co-editor of Comparative Kurdish Politics in the Middle East, published by Palgrave Macmillan, author of Patterns of Nationhood and Saving the State in Turkey, published by Routledge, and the author of a number of academic articles in recent years that take a longer view of various aspects of the Kurdish issue. Before we get into our conversation, first let me remind you once again that you can support the podcast by becoming a Turkey Book Talk member via Patreon. Membership gets you various extras including transcripts in both English and Turkish of every interview published on the podcast via email as soon as the episode is published. You also get transcripts of the entire Turkey Book Talk archive which includes a number of extra interviews not previously published on the podcast. Members also receive access to an exclusive discount deal which gets you a whopping 35% off the cover price of books published in IB Taurus and Bloomsbury's extensive Turkey and Ottoman history category. Turkey Book Talk members get a special code for a 35% discount on over 100 books in that series of academic and general interest titles, including physical books, pre-orders and e-books. As a member, you also receive an archive of 231 book reviews written by myself covering Turkish and international fiction and poetry, history, politics and journalism in the Middle East and Europe. That whole archive used to be available online, but nowadays a Turkey Book Talk membership is the only way to access it. Finally, I also send links to articles and other content related to the subject in the email that we send to members with every new episode, which is perfect if you want to delve deeper into the subject. To become a member, just pledge a minimum of $3 per episode via Turkey Book Talk's Patreon page. If you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then you'll certainly be more than welcome. But so long as you pledge $3 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. There are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. But now on to our conversation with Sarhun Al. Last week, the pro-Kurdish People's Democratic Party, HDP, staged various events that culminated in a march to Ankara to protest against the massive and growing pressure from the authorities in recent years. That pressure has, among many other things, included the removal of a majority of the HDP's elected mayors since local elections in March 2019 and the removal of some parliamentary deputies' status as MPs in order to prosecute them. I started by asking Sarhun Al to put this crackdown into a broader historical perspective. If you look at it historically from a historical perspective, the origins of the Kurdish question um, in Turkey, definitely we need to go back to late Ottoman period. Definitely we can talk about the Ottoman centralization efforts against the Kurdish Emirates in the 19th century. You can definitely again take it back the 19th century Ottoman elites as well, when different communities, especially in the Balkans, started to, you know, make demands for session, for more autonomy, etc. So you can see that starting in the 19th century, the Ottoman Turkish elites had this great anxiety with regards to the increasing power of the European states, Britain, France, also Russia was out there as a threat to the Ottoman Empire. And Ottoman Empire was definitely losing its power in the international system. But when you come to the early 20th century, particularly the after World War I, within the Wilsonian principles of national self-determination, 
some Kurdish organizations such as Kurdistan Teali Cemiyeti, the, the Society for the Advancement of Kurdistan, they involved into some debates about autonomy and independence from the Ottoman Empire at the time. But on the other hand, I mean, Mustafa Kemal was trying to mobilize some of the Kurds, Kurdish tribes in eastern Turkey for the war of independence. And one of the reasons why some of these Kurdish tribes joined Mustafa Kemal's movement was this notion of Muslim solidarity to a certain extent that um, Mustafa Kemal was able to mobilize um, for the the liberation of um, Anatolia from the, the foreign invaders. But after the Republic was founded when you come to 1920s, um, 1924, especially after the, the Sheikh Said Rebellion. The Sheikh Said Rebellion was on the one hand a reaction against the abolition of the Caliphate in 1924, and on the other hand it was a reaction to the Turkification of the, the Young Republic. So um, I think the Sheikh Said Rebellion kind of increased the security concern of the, the Republic elites. So historically in the 20th century after the creation of the Republic, the new founders of the state approached the Kurdish question as a security question. They were worried that an independent Kurdish state would be possible and in a way in the Treaty of Sir, this was kind of legitimized in the international community. So this anxiety was inherited by the Republic. And one reason how the Republic inherited this anxiety of surviving the state was the Kurdish question. Because when you come to the creation of Republic, the Armenian question was, you know, resolved with catastrophic results. The Greek um, attempts to control Western Anatolia was resolved with the the War of Independence. Um, The Mosul question was taken to the League of Nations. And the only question that could be really threatening the idea of this homogeneous nation state based on Turkish language, based on Turkish culture, especially influenced by the, the Ziya Gökalp, who is usually, you know, depicted as the father of Turkish nationalism. But ironically, he was from Diyarbakir. He had Kurdish origins as well was the Kurdish question. So you have the Sheikh Said rebellion in 1925, the, the so-called Ararat rebellion or Ara rebellion in 1930. And then you have the Dersim rebellion in 1937 and 38. When you come to 1950, most of these rebellions were crushed by the, the Republic. And then you have the multi-party period. The Republican People's Party is not a single party. And you have the Democrat Party with the leadership of Adnan Menderes. And then you see that, you know, there is kind of uh, more opportunity for the Kurds and for the political parties to, you know, appeal to the Kurds. Of course, the assimilation continued, the repression continued, but kind of this um, alternative political parties um, gave opportunity for the Kurds to play in the game of electoral politics. Then you come to the 1960s, especially with the liberal environment of 1961 constitution, you see that the Kurds 
efforts um, began to mobilize around the leftist politics and discontinuance in the 1970s. And with the 1980 military coup, you see the rise of the, the PKK, especially, you know, with the story of the Arabaker prison, how it in a way encouraged people to join the PKK to the armed resistance, armed rebellion, etc. So if you look at broadly, what I am trying to say here is that, first of all, we need to understand the origins of the question and how the state sees the Kurdish question. Predominantly, Kurdish question is seen by the state as a security threat, as a security threat to the territorial integrity of Turkey, as a security threat to the, the national unity of Turkey. But when you come to 1990s and 2000s, especially, you know, with in 90s, Turgut Özal's liberal ideas and kind of neo-Ottomanist visions about that Turkey should play a larger role in the Balkans, in the Middle East, kind of, you know, ease the uh, restrictions on the Kurdish language and uh, the culture in the 1990s. So we can see kind of the first steps of multiculturalism in the public sphere. And this is the case for the Alevis. This is the case for the, the pious Muslims as well. Kind of, you know, mobilizing against the, the Kemalist establishment. But then you have the, the soft military coup in 1997, the February 28th. And then we see the, the rise of Erdogan and the Justice and Development Party. So Justice and Development Party, I mean, I guess never had a really clear-cut policy towards the, the Kurdish issue. If you look at the, the trajectory of the Erdogan's discourses since the early 2000s, there are ebbs and flows. So you can see how this anxiety over an independent Kurdish state continues almost over a century and the expansion of the PKK, the expansion of Abdullah Jalan's ideology in Iraqi Kurdistan to a certain extent, but most importantly in Syria, northern Syria, um, or Rojava, known as the Western Kurdistan. Um, this triggered, again, the, the security concerns um, of um, the security bureaucracy in Turkey, the nationalist groups, and Erdogan's government as well. And this time, the Kurdish movement, the KK and the YPG in the Middle East, in Iraq and in Syria, they were supported by the United States. I think this also intensified the fears and the anxieties with regards to the independent Kurdish state in the minds of the, the ruling elites in um, contemporary Turkey. So I try to give this broad answer to your question. I mean, the reason why there is a crackdown on the, the HDP, I think this is part of the story. HDP, the way that the government sees, the way that, to a certain extent, Republican People's Party see it, that it's an extension of the PKK. So if there is a struggle, the military struggle against the PKK and the political struggle should be given against the, the HDP. So the, the crackdown on the HDP, I think, broadly can be framed in this, but also there is definitely short-term concerns of the, the elections. Erdogan is now an ally with the Nationalist Action Party, and now the government mostly relies on the nationalist rhetoric and the crackdown on HDP and the, the military, you know, um, operations against the PKK definitely speaks to this nationalist base. 
If we come to the HTP, I was doing a field work back in 2016, early 2016. I was in Sur, I was in Mardin, I went to close to the border in Suruç um, near Kobani. I also went to Erbil to do some interviews and speak with the people, especially after the, the peace process was broken in the summer of 2015. You could see that a lot of people I mean, they were really upset that the, the war started again, and they were upset to a certain extent how the government and the British state kind of used full force against the PKKs coming to the city centers. But also you could tell that a lot of people were upset with the Kurdish movement as well because they weren't successful to keep peace going on. So I think if you look at the HDP and a lot of scholars talk about this as well, in the 1990s, if you look at the legal Kurdish movement, they were really mobilizing a lot of people on the streets, a lot of protest demonstrations. Um, you don't see that nowadays. Um, I mean, on the one hand, this is because of the great suppression of the, of the state. There's not much room to play the game. But also, I think the HDP is also has some, you know, discontents. It has some sort of paradoxes in itself as well. And this march for protesting the appointment of state trustees in the, the municipalities in East Turkey, kind of, you know, I'm um, trying to energize the field, but I'm not sure if there will be great support because I think HDP kind of needs to think about what happened during the peace process, why it ended, um, whether the violence could be stopped. So I think that the people in the region, um, a lot of people, you know, um, are still disappointed for this failure and still kind of waiting for a response by the, the Kurdish movement. Uh, one of the interesting internal debates that's uh, intensified I mean, this crackdown that we're talking about is this debate about Turkey Lileşme. And that was really the, the raison d'etre of the HDP, really. At one point, it was to become, quote, a party of Turkey, you know, appealing both to Kurdish voters and to Turkish leftists and trying to kind of fuse the two in the same struggle, I suppose. Mm -hmm. And uh, now you've got this interesting divide because there are some activists who say that this process went too far and they mm -hmm. wanted a more explicitly ethnic movement to continue mm -hmm. and the same people say that the recent crackdown actually shows that, that this Tukiel Deshme uh, project was doomed to fail anyway uh, and on the other side there are people who say that this whole process of becoming a party of Turkey didn't go far enough and uh, the HDP should have cut ties with the PKK more explicitly and that may have saved it from this crackdown according to these voices. What do you make of those debates and where they're going? Well, I mean, I think this is one of the paradoxes of the HDP and the Kurdish movement in general, because Kurdish question is a regional question in the Middle East. It's a transnational question and its solution necessitates, you know, the transnational solution um, as well in Iraq, in Syria, in Turkey, later on in Iran. Iran is still the Pandora's box. Uh, there was this study back in 2014, they did public opinion survey in the Kurdish regions of Turkey, and they asked people whether they want independent Kurdish state or separation from the Turkish state. 
And this is 2014, right? There was a, a war going on against ISIS, the sentiment of Kurdish national identity, the, the emotions of Kurdish nationalism was kind of maximized at that moment. So around 40% of the people said yes to the to the independence, to separation. So this idea of Türkiye-Leşme becoming part of Turkey, I think it, it has a lot of supporters, but on the other hand, a lot of people in the region um, may see this as, you know, the HDP becoming too much involved within the Turkish left. Because this um, Turkey Leşme, it's based on Öcalan's ideas. He revised his ideology in the late 1990s and early 2000s. The PKK and the broader Kurdish movement dropped the goal of creating the socialist independent Kurdish state and adopted this notion of democratic economy without changing the borders of the states that Kurds live in. So this, in a way, Turkey Leşme, it is based on Öcalan's ideas, but people understand different things from this concept. Certain people in Western Turkey see this, that the Kurds should become Turks or become loyal citizens of Turkey. Some people understand it in the Western Turkey that the HDP should cut ties with the PKK and they don't have necessarily organic ties, but they are coming from the the same, definitely the same tradition, and they came out from the same question. But if you look at the Kurdish majority regions in um, eastern Turkey, people have different concerns. People have concerns about their language. They want the Kurdish language to be at best the official, one of the official languages of Turkey, or Kurdish language as being the, the language of instruction in public education. They are worried about the, the survival of the Kurdish language, Kurdish culture. They want to learn about Kurdish history, etc. So they want more Kurdishness coming out from the HDP. Um, but on the other hand, in Western Turkey, especially certain opposition groups, some leftist circles, they you know um, want HDP to become more of a center party, center left party that Turks would vote as well. And it happened. If you look at the, the success of June 7, 2015 elections, predominantly again the, the the Kurdish people voted for. Um, HDP, but also uh, a sizable portion of Turkish voters um, really got excited about the, the discourses, rhetoric, the, the political agenda of HDP as well. So I wouldn't say that it was a failure, it succeeded, but I think this is one of the, the paradoxes of HDP. It tries to bring people from very different backgrounds under the same roof, and it's not an easy thing to do. On the one hand, you have the, the sheikhs and the meles in eastern Turkey, who are more religious, who talk about Islam, who want to have more traditional conservative voice coming out from HDP. On the other hand, you have these groups in Istanbul, in Izmir, in Western Turkey, want to talk about LGBT rights, environmental issues. So it's not easy to bring these very different sociocultural, political trajectory under the same roof. And I think this is one of the paradoxes of the HDP. And they are still struggling to find the, the fine voice that everyone can follow and um, listen and um, support the, the HDP. So it's not an easy task to overcome. 
No, the um, these detentions of HDP mayors and the removals from office, they've been very, very sweeping. There's only one, I think, remaining elected HDP mayor in office, which is uh, Ihan Bilgen in Cars. In Cars, yeah. So it's been a huge set of measures, but this sweeping set of measures have not actually produced widespread social unrest. And this has actually been used by the HDP's opponents, you know, the government and pro-government voices to say that they've basically lost support and legitimacy, etc. And that's obviously quite a uh, disingenuous line to take. But why is it that that big public support did not come, you know, on the streets, basically? Is it fear? Is it the sheer strength and intimidation of the security forces? Or is it something else that's at work there? Well, I mean, it's perhaps both. On the one hand, there's fear. The the repression capacity of the state is imminent. It's really maximum nowadays. So there's partially fear. But also, I think there is a disappointment. There is a disappointment about the, the end of the peace process. And some people, you know, um, see HTP and uh, the Kurdish movement in general also responsible for the, the end of the, the peace process process as well. Um, So just because there's not great reaction by Kurdish people about these appointment of state trustees um, doesn't mean that they approve these policies. And I think Kurdish people are really experienced, politically experienced about daily life politics, the move of the state, the move of the Kurdish movement, etc. I think a lot of people see these times as a transition process. They do not necessarily see this as a sustainable policy, right? I think that's another reason why you don't see widespread social unrest against the, the, the removal of the Kurdish mayors. But also, I mean, as you said, it's partially fear as well. So partially fear, partially disappointment in the Kurdish movement. Not that they are losing legitimacy. As long as the Kurdish question remains unresolved, people will continue to a certain extent support either HDP or any other party who would be, you know, more, let's say, welcoming to solving the the Kurdish question. So, I mean, partially fear, partially disappointment. And also, I think people want to wait and see. They don't see this policy of repression nowadays as sustainable, as something long term. Now, I want to take a kind of broader look here, talking about uh, some of your academic work, uh, especially the book that you published, I think, last year. And one of the interesting sections of that book is you take a kind of historical perspective and you talk about Kurdish movement politics as sort of evolving over time, really. And it evolves in a very particular way that very much reflects sort of global trends, essentially. So during the Cold War years, there was this fusion when the PKK first emerged in the 1970s and 80s. There was this kind of fusion, really, of Kurdish nationalism with socialism and, you know, Marxist-Leninism, essentially. And it was very much inspired by this Cold War framework. It kind of positioned itself as being part of this revolutionary leftist front um, with a particular Kurdish characteristics. And uh, obviously, since the Cold War, that framework has kind of evaporated. So that has had its reflection as well in Kurdish movement politics. And, you know, we've seen the rise of uh, a rather less economic.
economically focused politics and a more identity based politics. So there's a competition there between you know ethnic focused rebellion and and religion as well. It made me sort of wonder what happens now because you know they are two very particular sort of trends of let's say waves that fit into a particular historical moment. But it seems like that post Cold War moment is now sort of moving on as well, and perhaps you know something new will emerge. I mean, what if you got a reading on that particularly or any kind of speculation at all? Um, so I mean, about the book, the book tries to answer the question of why states change their policies, and I do a comparative historical analysis in the book. I start from the, the Tanzimat era, the, the adoption of Ottomanism in the 19th century, and I come to the 1920s, the adoption of Turkishness, and then I come to 1990s and early 2000s, and Turkishness is not going anywhere, but kind of this discourse of neo-Ottomanism, this, in a way, Islamic multiculturalism, that Kurdish identity is partially recognized. I mean, the question of why states change their approaches toward um, nationhood, one of the issues is um, definitely the international context. If you look at the 19th century, you see the rise of, especially with the influence of American Revolution, Bill of Rights, French Revolution, the idea of constitutionalism, the idea of liberalism, subjects turning into citizens, dynasties falling down. Definitely Ottoman Empire was influenced by this and they wanted to introduce the Ottoman citizenship that they would bring Muslims and non-Muslims together under um, one roof. Um, international context also influences the, the non-state actors as well. I mean, if you look at the early 19th century, you see that, you know, the, the Serbian uprisings, the, the Greek independence from the Ottoman Empire, definitely influenced by these, you know, new discourses of constitutionalism, national states, um, liberalism, rights, etc. And if you come to the 19, especially post-World War One, definitely the Wilsonian principles of national self-determination influenced the environment. It was an age of nation-states. It was an age that we see a shift from empires um, towards nation-states. So assimilation was one of the widespread tools of building a homogeneous nation. And when you come to 1990s, um, the Cold War is over. I mean, definitely during the Cold War as well, especially um, with the United Nations in the 1960s, 1970s, you see this rise of human rights discourse, minority rights discourse, especially thinking about the anti-colonial movements in Africa, in South Asia, in Latin America, etc. And these discourses international discourses about liberal world order based on human rights, based on democracies, based on multiculturalism, minority rights definitely influence Turkey when you come to 1980s, 1990s. I mean, um, definitely for the Turkish case, there's a dimension of the European Union as well. And within this transformation in the international community, in the international market of ideas, definitely Kurdish moment was influenced by this as well. So at the end of the Cold War, gradually Erjalan revises his ideas with regards to the solution of the Kurdish question. He shifts from um, socialist, independent Kurdish state toward a more, you know, um, as I said a minute ago, democratic autonomy. Also, what is 
interesting since you mentioned that, you know, this ethnic secular dimension of the, the Kurdish movement versus more religiously oriented dimension as we see with the Kurdish Hezbollah in the 1990s. The, the origins of Kurdish Hezbollah, again, go back to 1970s, early 1980s, um, especially influenced by the Iranian revolution. And Kurdish Hezbollah was enormously notorious um, organization that fought against the PKK. For them, the PKK was Marxist, atheist. But what Öcalan sees, um, definitely he considers the influence of Islam within the Kurdish society. I mean, if you look at the Kurdish society from a broader perspective, we see a predominantly a traditional conservative um, society where religion is important um, part of the daily life. If you think about the respect for the sheikhs, if you think about the respect for the Kurdish meles, who are the, the religious authorities in local areas. So there is definitely tension between these more religiously motivated Kurdish identity versus more secular, leftist-motivated Kurdish identity. But I think that the, the gap between them, to a certain extent, is closed. If you remember the Civil Friday prayers that was organized by the Kurdish movement in, I think, 2011, um, this was kind of a you know reflection of that, how the, the mainstream Kurdish movement also became more flexible and liberal towards highest Muslim Kurdish identity. And if you remember the Nevroz speech of Öcalan in 2013, which in a way started the peace process, he also talked about the Muslim Brotherhood between the Turks and the Kurds, that Islam can be bonding, um, etc. And this was the debate a couple of years ago, I mean, before the peace process ended, whether Islam can solve the Kurdish question or not. And a lot of people try to offer this framework. Um, we are all Muslim brothers and sisters. We embrace all ethnic identities, etc. And AK Party government try to do this to a certain extent. Some intellectuals try to do this to a certain extent. But now we see that, you know, Islam uh, does not solve the question. So, yeah, Kurdish movement and Abdullah Öcalan in the post-Cold War um, definitely revised its political agenda, its ideology. And today, I think in your question, you mentioned what's going on today with regards to this international environment. I mean, there is a lot of debates that the liberal world order is in decline. Um, liberal international order that we talk about human rights, minority rights, democratization. But on the other hand, we see the rise of populist authoritarian leaders. I think one thing, I mean, I'm not reducing the decline of liberal international world order to the rise of ISIS. But I think one thing that ISIS was successful, they created fear. They created enormous fear in Western societies and in the societies that um, they emerged in Iraq, in Syria. We are kind of in an era of, you know, in a way, a Hobbesian world. There is a great insecurity. There is a great fear about violence. 
a lot of people talk about this, that, you know, the one of the unintended consequences of globalization was that violence and terrorism also got globalized as well. And so we, I think, to a great extent nowadays live in an age of security rather than liberty. I mean, if you look at the, the major international indexes, such as the Freedom House, such as the Economist Intelligence Unit, if you look at the numbers, democracies are in decline around the world and the demands for more human rights, demands for more um, minority rights are kind of on hold. Now we are talking about trade wars, we are talking about security, we are talking about building walls on the borders. So this also influenced the, the Turkish state. And as the, the Kurdish movement, as the Kurds in general became more successful against ISIS in Iraq, in Syria, and in a way become legitimate actors in the international community with the support of the United States, with the support of European Union, because Kurds seen as the, the liberators of, in a way, the international community from this barbaric organization. I think this enormously increased the anxiety of the Turkish state and now the conflict, the Kurdish question or Turkey's struggle against PKK, it's not just Turkey, it's a regional war. It's a war in Syria, it's a war in Iraq, it's a war in Turkey. So the issue became much more transnational, it became much more regional. And again, this comes back to you know my argument that Turkish state fears about an independent Kurdistan. And to be honest, this fear is not unfounded from the Turkish state's perspective. If you think about uh, the referendum in Iraqi Kurdistan in 2017, in Syria, the YPG and the PYD and Erdogan's ideology does not necessarily talk about independent Kurdish state, but Turkish state doesn't want to take the risk. And I think the most of the operations, Turkish military operations in Syria, military incursions in Syria, was to prevent any potential of Kurds becoming an independent armed state in the in the area. Just going back to the previous subject, I suppose, that we mentioned a bit there, this question of religion. In one of your articles, um, you quote a survey, a poll that was conducted uh, in the east uh, and southeast of Turkey, and uh, I'll quote from it here. You say, for instance, quote, one survey study showed that around 62.5% of all inhabitants of Turkish Kurdistan and 45.8% of HDP voters demand that the pro-Kurdish HDP to become a more religiously oriented political party. And that kind of really struck me because um, it also reminded me of another section of the book where you kind of go right back into the 19th century. Uh, it's a really interesting section and you describe how important religious sheikhs essentially were in many sort of Kurdish rebellions, both in the Ottoman Empire and the early Turkish Republic. One of the paradoxical underlying causes of all that is that the Ottoman modernization process in the 19th century, because modernization meant centralization, mm -hmm. and that basically meant removing or undercutting local authorities, including local tribal configurations that until then in southeastern Anatolia and eastern Anatolia had quite a bit of autonomy and quite a bit of authority in a very decentralized, very geographically varied empire. And removing those as the empire centralized meant that the only independent authorities 
authorities left in these areas were religious leaders, essentially. So they ended up becoming the ones who led various regional rebellions against the central state in both the Ottoman Empire and the uh, early Turkish Republic. And it got me thinking again, because, you know, today we're actually seeing quite a few reports of the importance of tribal leaders, really, in southeastern Anatolia. And you're hearing reports about the future party, which is led by Ahmet Davutoglu, former prime minister. He's just set this new party up, uh, resigned from the AKP. And he's uh, supposedly in talks with uh, various tribal groups trying to reach out to uh, various tribal configurations in southeastern Anatolia. Uh, and there's also the question of the Deva party of um, Ali Babajan, the mm-hmm. former deputy prime minister, among other things. Another uh, person who resigned from the AKP recently and he set up this new party. Another kind of conservative uh, challenger perhaps to the AKP. And um, it just gets you thinking that, you know, they have set their sights on the southeast as a potential area that they can mine votes in. I mean, how do you see very briefly? I mean, how do you see these attempts and specifically this question of, you know, them reaching out to tribal groups? Is that something that is going to be legitimate in 2020 or? Um, the, the First of all, the question of religion. I mean, I think just because, you know, um, in that poll, just because they said that they want HDP to become more religious oriented doesn't mean that predominantly the people are automatically going to vote any religious party that comes after HDP. Right? So in that regard, I don't think like the Otolo has a big chance to get the support of the, the Kurds in the region and the Otolo was one of the engineers of Turkey's Middle East policy, the ideas of neo-Ottomanism and, you know, being sympathetic to the Muslim Brotherhood or Islamic groups in the region. So I don't think religion is an easy pass for any political party to gain the support of the people in Turkish Kurdistan. That's not going to work that easily. Tribes, I think, the Kurdish society, like any society, it's not a fixed society, right? Definitely, tribes are part of the political culture, um, the social culture um, in the region. I don't think that tribes are as important as, I don't know, back in the 1940s, back in the 1950s. Um, Definitely, it's one of the, you know, the organizing institution of the daily life. For instance, if you look at Diyarbakir, Diyarbakir is a very modern, very urban um, city that tribes are not necessarily um, very influential. In Shanurfa, tribes are more influential. Um, There are Arab tribes, Kurdish tribes, Zaza tribes. And if you go to the, you know, towards Iran, um, the southeastern border across Shurna, Kakkari, there are also tribes that have connections with Iraqi Kurdistan as well. Um, but again, Kurdish society is not fixed. They are constantly evolving. And I mean, economically, if the Kurds are becoming, to a certain extent, let's say more middle income groups, you see the, the decrease of the influence of the tribes. So, I mean, I guess what I'm trying to say is that Kurdish tribes are not necessarily as influential as in the in the 20th century. So there's a trend of Kurdish secularization. There's a trend of, in a way, the, the urbanization and globalization of the Kurdish identity as well, especially the Kurdish youth. They follow the popular culture around the world. They follow the popular culture of Turkey 
they definitely, you know, create their own popular culture based on Kurdish language. I mean, if you think about Kurdish rap, Kurdish mashup music, if you follow them on YouTube, you see that young Kurdish people are really trying to become this global and um, national um, political culture or popular culture. So I don't think tribes or any party, Davutolu or Babajan, Tolkien or getting the support of a couple of tribes are going to give them any importance in the region. But I would say that I think Babajan has a more chance than Davutolu because Davutolu is usually seen as one of the masterminds of, in a way, the mess in the Middle East and the wars and the, the violence um, in the region that Kurds got into. So um, Davutolu has definitely less chance than Babajan. I mean, one of Babajan's significant strengths is that he's kind of a more technocrat, you know, with, to a certain extent, liberal values. Um, he has networks in the financial centers of the West in London, in the US. So and a lot of people's um, daily life concerns are economic concerns. So I think Babajan um, has a more chance than Davutoglu to, you know, get certain votes in Kurdish regions, but I don't think like, you know, the HDP is going to lose great legitimacy in the region. Yes, people are to a certain extent disappointed about what happened in the last couple of years, but still, um, this is a movement. This is not necessarily a political party. This is not necessarily that people just go to the ballots and vote for the party. This is a movement that has a history, that has a memory, that has a culture. It's a moment in a way that became the identity of the people. And I'm not talking about, you know, the and I don't see the Kurds as one homogeneous group, but um, definitely HDP, I think it's going to remain as perhaps the, the hegemonic party in uh, most of the, the East. Cities. I think AK Party was the great competitor until 2015, but roughly if you talk about the voting patterns, the voting behaviors in the region nowadays, probably I would say 65% for the, the HDP and 35% for AK Party, perhaps still um, to a certain extent Erdogan um, himself as well. And finally, just looking ahead, really, we're seeing uh, a lot of talk about a possible operation on Kandil, the PKK headquarters in northern Iraq. The Turkish military seems to be sort of edging closer and closer, and it's really bolstered by new you know, military technologies in this terrain, like armed drones. And I uh, just wonder if we could end with a bit of speculation here. I mean, what do you think hypothetically would happen if some kind of military victory is secured and the PKK's leadership is wiped out in Kandil? Obviously, that wouldn't solve the Kurdish question, but it would potentially remove one aspect of the, the military element of it. I mean, just wonder if you could briefly sort of speculate on that, you know, how the question could, how the Kurdish question could possibly evolve in that kind of eventuality. I mean, definitely the Turkish military industrial complex, it got great strength in the last couple of years with increasing technology, drone technology, etc. And the targeting of the, the high um, PKK militants in the region, the military victory is possible. But the problem is not a military problem. Uh, the military victory itself is not necessarily um, solved the question. 
Also, I think what's happening is that this increasing pressure of the, the Turkish military on the, the PKK, it also creates divisions among Kurds as well. If you look at the, the recent strife between the, the PKK in Kandil, the Patriotic Union of Kurdistan in Suleimaniye against Barzani's, because Barzani's are closer to Turkey. And um, so it also creates divisions within the Kurds as well. Um, but again, the military victory is very possible. Um, Turkish military um, has learned to cope with this insurgency over time. It has uh, the historical knowledge about it. But I am not sure if the Kurdish going to go anywhere because on the other side of border in northern Syria and Rojava, there's a militarization, there's a institutionalization of Öcalan's ideology, which is not necessarily, you know, finalized. On the one hand, Turkey kind of prevented this with the military incursions, but Russia seems to be pushing for more federal structure um, in Syria. I'm not sure how Assad approaches to the Kurdish moment. There seem to be some talks between them, especially Turkey becoming the common other of Assad and the YPG. So Turkish military can definitely have a military victory in Kandil, but there is also the, the story of um, northern Syria. And again, Turkish military had a victory at the end of 1990s as well, especially um, with the capture of Öcalan in 19. 99. Um, so the military victory itself does not bring political victory. So I think this question is going to remain around. The way that I read it, if you look at the 20th century, uh, most of the 20th century for the Kurds were, if you look at in Iraq, in Turkey, to a certain extent in Iran, in Syria, there was much more repression by the, the Assad family. The 20th century was about a struggle to gain status, to gain, you know, political autonomy in the states that the Kurds lived. To a certain extent, this was achieved. If you look at Iraqi Kurdistan, starting after the, the Gulf War, um, they got de facto autonomy. And then after the invasion of Iraq by the United States in 2003, Iraq evolved into a federal structure. And with the new constitution of 2005, mostly drafted by the Americans, now the, the Iraqi Kurds have official federal authority. And then in Syria, after the Arab Spring, after the, the civil war in Syria, we see that they have de facto autonomy as well. So I think the Kurds lived without any institutional, constitutional status in the 20th century. I don't think they will accept to live without any recognition, without any status in the states that they live. So probably we will see the continuation of this problem. And if the national states will not recognize the rights of the Kurds, the, the problems will endure. That was Serhun Al. Many thanks to him for joining for episode number 118.
Don't forget to check out Turkey Book Talk's partner initiative, Turkey Recap. Turkey Recap is an email newsletter put together by journalists Razier Akkoch and Diego Cupolo, friends of Turkey Book Talk. It's a very useful weekly one-stop shop that packages together all major developments in Turkey over the past seven days. Dropping into your email inbox every Thursday, Turkey Recap also includes links to interesting articles as well as some excellent puns. Search for Turkey Recap on Twitter to find links to how to subscribe. Remember, if you enjoy Turkey Book Talk, you can become a member on Patreon to support us if you haven't already. Membership gets you that IB Taurus Bloomsbury book discount, transcripts of every interview, transcripts of the entire archive, access to an archive of 231 book reviews written by me, and links via email to articles and other content related to the subject of each episode. For all that, just pledge $3 per episode via Turkey Book Talk's Patreon account. Also, do please rate or review Turkey Book Talk on iTunes or whatever podcast platform you use. Follow via Twitter or like our Facebook page and I always enjoy hearing from listeners so please send any recommendations, feedback or abuse to williamjohnarmstrong at gmail.com but until our next episode of Turkey Book Talk in a couple of weeks thank you very much for listening. (laughs) 